who wrote the most verses in the New Testament? Now, don't say the Holy Spirit because he wrote all of it. Which human author wrote the most verses in the New Testament? The answer is not, as I would have assumed, Paul. The answer is Luke, Dr. Luke. Does that surprise you? It certainly did me when I first learned it. Dr. Luke wrote 28% of the New Testament. Paul wrote 2,033 verses in the New Testament. Luke wrote 2,138 verses in the New Testament. Of course, all of Luke's verses are not in his gospel record. He was also the human author of the book of Acts. But it's his gospel account that we want to consider in this message. So if you are not already there, turn with me to the gospel of Luke. As you are turning there, allow me to mention some of the personal background information about Luke. For one thing, it is very likely that he was not a Jew. The evidence seems to point to the fact that he was a Gentile. If that is the case, and not all scholars agree with that, but if that is the case then he was the only non-Jew that we know of who wrote a portion of inspired Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. The only non-Jew to be a contributor to Holy Scripture. A second interesting fact about Luke is that he was a doctor. In Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to him as Luke, the beloved physician. As uh, I've often said in the past, uh, he was... Uh, Luke was a doctor by occupation, but he was a minister by heart. He just had a heart for God's work and God's people. In light of the fact that he was a doctor, it's interesting to note the attention he gives in his gospel to medical matters. For example, look at chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, and we'll just look at a few examples. Chapter 4, verse 38. 438. It says, Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. Luke is the only gospel writer to record the fact that Simon's wife's mother had a high fever. Other gospel writers mention it, but he notes that it was a high fever. That was significant to him. Look at chapter 8 of Luke's gospel. Chapter 8, verse 43. It says, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of Jesus' garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Luke is the only gospel writer to give us this interesting statement to make sure to record the fact that Jesus was able to do what no doctor was able to do. Now, the other gospel writers mention this, but what is significant is that Luke, as a doctor, was himself willing to state that. He he made sure to record the fact that Jesus was able to do what no doctor was able to do. Look at chapter 14. Another example. Verse 1. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. 
And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And Jesus took him and healed him and let him go. Dropsy, by the way, is a swelling of the body due to retention of excessive liquid. Luke made sure to mention the specific illness this man had. Look at chapter 22 for another medical insight. Chapter 22, this is when Jesus was arrested in the garden. Luke 22, 49. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. That was a detail Luke made sure to include because as a doctor he was amazed at what Jesus was able to do. Not only was Luke amazed at what Jesus was able to do, he was amazed at what Jesus was able to endure. So he is the one who records up in verse 44, Jesus sweating, and it says his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So this is a unique facet of Luke's gospel, and these are only a few of the examples. As a physician, Luke noted things and included things that others might have a tendency to pass over or leave out of their record. However, another interesting feature of Luke's gospel is the fact that he wasn't an eyewitness of the life and death of the Lord Jesus. We know that from the way he opens his book. Go all the way back to chapter 1. And notice how he opens his gospel account. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. And then he goes on to state his purpose or his intention with this gospel. But what I want you to notice for now is that Luke places himself in a category different than those who were eyewitnesses. He was not an eyewitness. Instead, he did research and obtained information from eyewitnesses, and he put that information together under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to write this book. And that's what he delineates in verses 3 and following. He says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which, in which you were instructed. This fourth verse lets us know that Luke was very careful and meticulous in his research and in his writing. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we know from statements in First and Second Timothy that what Luke wrote was under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. Notice verse 3 before we leave it. Verse 3 tells us that Luke wrote this gospel account for a man named Theophilus, who was most excellent or most noble, depending on your translation. That title indicates that Theophilus was a man of high rank and high social standing. It is possible, though only conjecture, but possible that he assumed responsibility for publishing Luke and Acts so that they would be available to Gentile readers. We know from reading through this gospel and studying it that Luke directed this gospel toward Gentile readers. There's absolutely no doubt about that. For example, he explains Jewish customs so his Gentile readers will understand them. He explains the geography of the land of Israel so his Gentile readers will understand the geography. 
He translates terms that the Jews would have used into Greek words so his Gentile readers would understand them. Luke's gospel is definitely directed toward non-Jewish readers. Matthew wrote to the Jewish people to show that Jesus is the prophesied king, the promised Messiah. Mark wrote to the Romans to show that Jesus is the obedient servant. Luke wrote to the Greeks to show that Jesus is the perfect man. Luke stresses the humanity of our Lord maybe more than any of the other gospel writers. He gives the most complete record, the most complete account of Christ's ancestry, birth, and development, showing that Jesus alone fulfills the Greek ideal of human perfection. That's a major emphasis of Luke's gospel. He is the only gospel writer to record the annunciations of Zacharias and Mary, the songs of Elizabeth and Mary, the birth and childhood of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, the visit of the shepherds, the circumcision of Jesus, the presentation in the temple, details of Christ's childhood, and the inner thoughts of Mary. All of those events are unique to the Gospel of Luke. In addition to those unique details, Luke gives a special place to women in his Gospel. Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, Martha, Mary of Bethany. He had a strong interest in people in general, as seen in his, as seen in his portraits of Zacharias, the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the repentant tax gatherer Zacchaeus, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the one thankful leper out of the ten who were healed, and the repentant thief on the cross. All of those details bring a unique flavor to Luke's gospel. Luke presents our Lord as the Son of Man who came to seek and save that which was lost. That statement from our Lord is recorded in Luke 19.10, as we heard it read earlier, and it's probably the key verse of the book. If you, if you had to pick a key verse for the gospel of Luke, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So with all that as background, let's begin in chapter 1 to do our overview of this marvelous presentation of our Lord to see what the Holy Spirit would teach us. In chapters 1 and 2, Luke places a strong emphasis on the ancestry, birth, and early years of the perfect man and his forerunner, John the Baptist. Their infancy stories are intertwined as Luke records their birth announcements Advents and temple presentations. The announcement of the birth of John the Baptist is in chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. John's role is defined in verse 17. Notice what it says He will also go before him, that is, John will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what the angel told Zacharias that his son would do. Six months later, another announcement was made. Down in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. 
But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and consider what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. As you can imagine, this overwhelmed Mary and she burst into her hymn of praise known as the Magnificat. Three months later, John the Baptist was born. Skip down to verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Six months later, there was another birth. It's recorded in chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know the story well. The shepherds came to visit baby Jesus. That's recorded in verses 8 through 20. Eight days after his birth, according to the law of God, Jesus was circumcised. Thirty-three days later, Jesus was brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord God. Down in verse 25, we read, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess of the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with the husband seven years from her virginity, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So Luke gives a lot of attention to these early events connected with the birth and life of the perfect Son of Man. He tells us in verse 40, the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That fact comes out in the way that Jesus taught the temple teachers when he was only 12 years old. Verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company... They went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. 
So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And that's the last thing we know about his childhood. The rest of his preparation time for ministry is summed up very briefly by Dr. Luke down in verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. As we move into chapter 3, we jump ahead almost 20 years. Not quite, but almost 20 years. Jesus set the stage for his public ministry by baptism. Chapter 3, verse 21 says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. After his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as you know, he emerged from that ordeal unstained and proven to be the perfect man. So he launched into his public ministry. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. But even though his popularity was growing, as we just read, so was opposition growing. When he went to the synagogue in his own hometown of Nazareth and claimed to be the Messiah, the people were furious. Verse 28 tells us of this fourth chapter, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way. When a group of us, when we were in Israel just this past March, we went to the location above Nazareth that commemorates this, this occasion where they attempted to kill Jesus, but he wasn't going to be killed on this occasion. It was impossible for them to kill him before his time because even though he was the perfect man, he is also the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he had control over the timing of his own death. He wasn't going to die until he had completed his ministry. In spite of all the opposition against him, his death would not come until he willed it to come. And let me tell you, he did have much opposition. It's interesting to note that Luke demonstrates the fact that growing belief and growing opposition develop side by side. It's an interesting way to look at our Lord's ministry. Growing belief and growing opposition developed side by side. We've just seen major opposition as the people of Nazareth tried to kill him. Now Luke shows us growing popularity. Verse 31 Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. 
And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. As a result of this, Jesus continued to grow in popularity. Verse 40 says, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. This demonstrates his great compassion, his immense compassion as the perfect man. But he was not only a man. Yes, he was a man, fully and completely and truly human. But he is also the Son of God. And so verse 41 says, And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. This is something that Luke emphasizes in this section from 4.14 through 9.50. That is a unique section in Luke's gospel. He demonstrates the authority of Jesus over every realm possible. Jesus displayed his authority over demons, disease, nature, the effects of sin, tradition, and all people. Chapter 5 tells us what the response was on many occasions. Chapter 5, verse 26 reads this way. It says, And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. But as we saw earlier, that wasn't always the response. In chapter 6, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, and look at the response down in verse 11. It says, But they were filled with rage. And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. But they weren't able to do anything to him until it was his time to die. His ministry kept right on going as we see in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7 verse 11. It says, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the, crowd, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. But it's important to realize that his ministry wasn't just about healing, casting out demons, and raising the dead. He came to preach the word of God. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we read this. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. He healed to demonstrate compassion, but he preached to show the people how to be forgiven of sin and how to be right with God. And he sent his twelve out to do the same thing. That's recorded in the early verses of chapter 9. 
What was his message? Look at chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it if a man to a man if he gains the whole world and, lo- and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. By the way, beloved, this is still the message today, what we just read there. Do you want to lose your soul? you want to lose your life? Then just hold on to your life. Do you want to save your soul? Then give your life to Christ. That was the message then. It's still the message today. I emphasize this point because it's easy to get caught up in the miracles and the healings and the casting out of demons and forget that the most important issue, the most important issue is dealing with sin. That tendency to get wrong focus even happened back then. So Jesus tried to emphasize the most crucial issue. He tried to tell people that man's most crucial need is forgiveness of sin, and therefore his most crucial work was going to be his death for our sin. Down in verse 43 of this same chapter, it says, And they were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. The Son of God, the Son of Man came to this earth to die. To say it another way, the Son of God came to this earth as the Son of Man to die. Verse 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. From this point on, Everything points to his impending death. There has already been opposition, but it increases from this point on. It intensifies. Jesus continues to minister, and he also seeks to prepare his followers for his death and his departure. For example, in chapter 10, he focused their attention on right priorities, right focus. Notice in verse 17, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. They needed to get their focus right and keep it right because Jesus wasn't going to be with them very much longer. In chapter 11, the opposition becomes stronger. Chapter 11, verse 14, we read, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, but some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now some are calling him demon-possessed, satanically possessed. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to stop him. But he kept on ministry. Verse 27, And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd 
raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Because that is true, he kept teaching people the word of God. Chapters 12 through 19 record many of Jesus' sermons, many of his lessons, many of his teachings. In chapter 12, he teaches about hypocrisy and covetousness and faithfulness. In chapter 13, he teaches about repentance and hypocrisy and the kingdom of God. And he is heartbroken because he knows that many of the people of his day won't repent and won't be in the kingdom. Chapter 13, verse 34, look at what, ha- what it says. 1334, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall, see, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus laments over Jerusalem because the city would not repent. But even though the people of Jerusalem as a whole wouldn't respond, Jesus knew that some individuals would. So in chapter 14, he teaches about humility and salvation and discipleship. In chapter 15, he teaches about God's love for sinners and the importance of repentance. In chapter 16, he teaches about eternal rewards and destiny. In chapter 17, he teaches about forgiveness and thankfulness and the kingdom of God. In chapter 18, he teaches about prayer and entrance into the kingdom of God. Look at chapter 18, verse 17. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. That's the way into the kingdom. We come humbly and with a childlike faith that is wholehearted. And in chapter 19, that is illustrated for us when a man named Zacchaeus repented of his sin and turned to Christ for salvation. Near the end of chapter 19, we enter into the final section of this gospel. Chapter 19, verse 28, through chapter 24, verse 53 tells us about the events connected with the death of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. Look at chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. This begins the final days of Jesus' life. He rode into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. We know that as Palm Sunday. Verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitudes of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The next day he cleansed the temple, which infuriated the religious leaders. Verse 45 says he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. The next day he taught in the temple. That's recorded in chapters 20 and 21. 
On Wednesday, Judas agreed to betray Christ. That's the early verses of chapter 22. On Thursday, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, and he instituted the new covenant. Later that night, he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. During that night, Jesus began to be tried. In all, he went through six trials. Three religious trials, three civil trials. Three before the Jewish religious leaders, three before the Roman civil leaders. Luke tells us about four of the six. He describes four of the six, two he doesn't mention. The description of the trials, the description begins near the end of chapter 22 and runs on into chapter 23. Finally, after all these mock trials, Jesus was crucified. Look at chapter 23, verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. The perfect man who had never done anything wrong was crucified with two criminals. What irony. Some recognized the injustice of what was being done. Not all, but some. Verse 47 tells us, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who had come together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. The centurion was right. He was a righteous man. He was more than a righteous man. He was and is the sinless Son of God. And because he is the sinless Son of God, he didn't stay in that tomb. Look at chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. In other words, it happened just like he said it would happen. They remembered. This is what he said would happen. The righteous one, the sinless one, took our sins on the cross. And to show that his sacrifice was acceptable, God raised him from the dead. And to prove further that he was risen, the Lord Jesus showed himself to many people after his resurrection. Verses 13 through 35 of this chapter tell about his appearance to two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus as he shared with them from the Scripture. They didn't know who Jesus was for a while. But eventually they recognized him. Skip down to verse 30. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the Scriptures to us? Wouldn't you have loved to have heard how he opened the Scriptures to them? These two went back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles and others what had happened. And guess who showed up? 
Verse 36, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. Luke tells us that in all, Jesus spent 40 days on earth between his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. Among other things, he used those 40 days to further teach the disciples, preparing them for their ministry once he was gone. And what was their ministry supposed to be? What was the content of their message? What did this look like? Look at verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And, here we go, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Their ministry was to tell people that forgiveness of sins is available for those who will repent and turn to the Lord Jesus. That was their message. That was their ministry. It's our message and our ministry. Forgiveness is available for all who will repent and turn to the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus left for the disciples to do. That's what he has left for us to do. And so we skip down to the end of the gospel, verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. What a way to end this gospel. Beloved, that should be our response to Luke's marvelous presentation of our Lord. We should be filled with great joy as they were and we should worship. No other response is acceptable. No other response is really worthy of a response to such a presentation. Let's close in prayer. Father, what a, what a tremendous and glorious presentation of your Son, the Lord Jesus, written by Dr. Luke under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. What a powerful picture. What a powerful portrait to see the things that Dr. Luke emphasized, the, the unique contributions he gives us to our understanding of the Lord Jesus, to see all of this sort of in one big picture, it just it thrills our hearts. No wonder as he ends this gospel, no wonder he says that the disciples and those who were gathered on that occasion worship him and return to Jerusalem with great joy, praising and blessing you, Father. May that be our response as we contemplate the Lord Jesus and consider him, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his commission to his disciples, his commission to us as we, as we think on all of these things and contemplate all of them. May we also be filled with great joy and respond with praise and blessing to you, Father for such a Savior, for such a salvation that is ours through and in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.